You guys can be seated. Thank you, band. I'll tell you a little bit more about me. So I, uh, I grew, went to school, studied accounting and finance. I worked in finance for a couple of years. And then after finishing, uh, kind of working in, I was working in a capital fund. I got a random call when I was working in Franklin, Tennessee from Hume Lake. And I ended up moving here and kind of a total switch of plans for the trajectory of my life. At that point, if you asked me what I wanted to do, I would have said I wanted to invest in multifamily real estate. And that was my, my goal. And I thought I would be extensively involved in ministry down the line. In Tennessee, I was a part of a church. And in my church, there was a 14-year-old dude who was a foster kid. And he made some really significant mistakes and ended up getting sent to Juvie Hall. And he'll be in prison for the next 30 years. And uh, I just had a heart for the guy. And so I ended up figuring out ways to get in there um, to the Juvie Halls. And I started preaching in Juvie Hall when I was working in finance. and playing basketball with the students. And I was in there every week and my heart just broke um, for people that didn't know the Lord. Um, and it's funny how the Lord leads step by step and not mile by mile. But at that point I just knew, man, I wanted to be a part of engaging unbelievers with the gospel through the preaching of his word. And then kind of coincidentally, but we know biblically that it's providentially because God moves our steps. I got a call from Hume Lake, was here for a matter of years, didn't have a band for the summer. I called this girl Katie. Um, oh gosh, how's this going to go? And uh, ended up marrying Katie, who's here, is my wife. We've been married for a few years. We have one little baby. She's in a pink furball outfit right now. Her name is Lily Jean. I'll tell you a little bit about my wife and then we'll jump in, you know, because you guys are dating, single, Whatever. So let me tell you about my wife. I, I, last, it was a couple of weeks ago, I was telling the students, I was preaching at winter camp, and I was trying to kind of explain to them Katie, and I'm going, hey, it's her birthday. Katie goes absolutely ham for like my half birthdays, you know, like happy 28.5 or whatever it is. And she's like, I threw you a fiesta. And I'm like, here's a pair of sweats. I, you know, like I, I don't really know how to match her level. So for her birthday a couple of weeks ago, I was like really stressed. I gotta come up with a plan. It's gotta be good. I tried a couple options, but it wasn't working out. And so then I go, okay, Katie, I got a plan. Um, how about this? We'll rent a boat. We'll go to the Catalina Islands. We'll have dinner in a steakhouse on the Catalina Islands. We'll rent bikes, bike all around the island. There's this zip line, it's gorgeous. Your mom's already agreed to watch the baby an island day with my sweet girl. And I'm thinking, this is sweet. And I go, what do you think? And she just looks at me and says, can we go to Knott's Berry Farm? So I, <laughs> I, uh, I was like, okay. Uh, and then I went to Knott's Berry Farm a couple weeks ago and you know, I, I've never been quite bullied by an 11 year old like I was. But they are a different species at Knott's Berry Farm. It's like Babylon there, where they just kind of boss you around and like some 11-year-old with like a chain and like a Travis Barker shirt will come up to you and be like, scram, loser, that's my spot in line. And you're like, oh my goodness, you know? So 
Knott's Berry Farm, highly recommend it if you're looking to uh, long for the second coming of Christ. Um, I, uh, can I just jump into God's word? I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, let me, uh, can I pray for us this morning? And I said it last night, one of the main reasons I pray is because when we open God's word, you, me, uh, everyone else for that matter, is absolutely dependent upon an alien power for anything meaningful or impactful to happen to our lives. Meaning that I could be the greatest preacher in the world or you could be the greatest listener in the world and yet, unaided by the Spirit of God, nothing good is going to happen. Do you understand that? So when Jesus says, you can do nothing apart from me, that includes listening. And so when people say, sometimes when you hear people preach, they'll say, will you pray with me? Sometimes when we listen to other people pray, it's a passivity on our own part to assume that one person is interceding before God on the behalf of everybody. But what we need, what I need and what we all need is to pray together in the sense where we are going, God, please move through your word this morning because apart from the spirit of God, nothing profitable can happen because apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing, amen? Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we confess our own inadequacy. And God, I confess that no amount of human eloquence or sermon preparation can transform hearts only the Spirit of God moving through the Word of God has the power to transform. And so, God, I confess that. Would you fill me with your Spirit today as we look to the precious Word of God that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and which alone has the ability to show us who you are. We're so grateful, God, that you do not disguise yourself in ambiguity, but you reveal yourself in words of clarity. We are grateful, we confess our need, and we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. As we approach the subject of marriage or dating or purity or singleness this week, what I wanna do with you this morning, and I thank Costi for the way he set us up last night, what I wanna do with you this morning is to look at purity from a fundamental level. In a world that's drenched in sexuality. When we think of purity, we automatically think of the purity that autom like relates only and explicitly to our sex. But purity fundamentally in the Bible has far more to do with sex. It has to do with our hearts before God. So purity means more than sexual purity. And I think what happens in the world in which we live, and Costi referenced this last night, is if you've grown up in the church, much of what you've heard are the warnings against impurity before you've ever heard the promises to those who are pure. The Bible doesn't start off with God giving a massive warning. The Bible starts off with God giving two people in a garden a wonderful promise. A wonderful promise, and Costi alluded to this last night. A promise that's so rich and so wonderful and pleasurable it's not just that they were to be together, it was that they were to walk in the presence of God. Living their life with God in the garden was the wonderful promise. And then there's a comma and then it says, you can eat from everything, first of all. Everything in this garden is for you to enjoy, including myself. And there's a but. But the knowledge or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you need to stay away from because in that day you'll surely die. But God doesn't start off his interactions with them going, Stay away from this, but you can enjoy all this. It's always on the contrary. 
And so when we look at purity, we have to understand the promises that God lays out first before we look at the warnings. And Lord willing, later on tonight, I'll look at some of the warnings against impurity. But today I want you to see how God defines purity, how Jesus himself is going to define purity in his word. In 1982, the LA Times carried the story of Anna Mae Penica, a 62-year-old lady who had been blind from birth. At 47, she married a man from her Braille class, and for 15 years, he did the seeing for both of them until 15 years later, he completely lost his vision to retinitis pigmentosa. And so at this point, both of them are completely blind. Anna Mae had never seen any of the faces of the people she loved the most. She had never seen the colors of the food she ate or the clouds across the sky. But then in October of 1981, Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jewel Stein Eye Institute of UCLA performed a surgery to remove the rare congenital cataracts from her eyes. And for the first time since she was born, 62-year-old Anna Mae Penica could see. The article tells us that she was amazed. This is her words. Everything is so much bigger and brighter. When I saw people for the first time, some were taller than I imagined, skinnier than I imagined, fatter than I imagined, shorter. Anna Mae says, I can hardly wait to wake up in the morning, to splash water on my face, to put on my glasses, and to enjoy the changing morning light. Her vision is now 2030, the article says, good enough to pass her driver's test. Think how wonderful it must have been to have your entire life going like this on the faces of the people you love the most, but the faces she had only felt with her hands, now she beholds with her eyes, waves she had only heard, and now sunsets she had only dreamed of, she sees. Can you imagine living your life in total darkness and then at 62 finally receiving the gift of sight? We can only begin to imagine, right? The thrill of seeing people for the first time. Now your eyes, I've had glasses since the first grade. Um, I wear contacts most of the time. But the eyes are so fundamental to the ways that we behold, comprehend, communicate. That's why my dad taught me when I was four, look me in the what? The eyes, the gift of receiving your sight can hardly be described. But the Bible is going to describe a more wonderful type of sight than even that which Anna Mae Penica experienced. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I have a question for you this morning, and I have a question for you this weekend. Are you pure in heart? And do you long to see God? 
in this sermon, we're looking at the most famous sermon given by the most famous preacher, by the most famous man in the history of the world. And Jesus is addressing his followers and he's addressing his followers in a context that is drenched in religious, pharisaical externalism. If you haven't grown up in the church, let me give you the 101 on the Pharisees. The Pharisees had rinsed behavior, reformed manners, renovated externals. They were cautious of how they appeared. Everything was careful and cautious in order that they might honor God. But Jesus is going to tell this group of people in Luke 11 that the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you leave it dirty. He's saying everything on the outside appears to be perfect, but it's mingy and dingy and dirty and dusty on the inside because all you try to do is appear a certain way. You're not pure in heart. Matthew 15, 8, Jesus is going to look at this group of people and he's going to say, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Your heart's not surrendered. It's proud, not humbled. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus is going to address the Pharisees, the context which many Jewish people lived, the religious leaders, if you will, and he's going to tell them in Matthew 23, woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus, biblically speaking, understand this, in a world that tiptoes around everybody's feelings, Jesus was full of love, full of grace, and never pulled a single punch. Woe to you, hypocrites. We are going to look specifically at verse eight, but I want you to see Jesus' progression because in Matthew five, what Jesus is going to give you and me is a series of spiritual birthmarks. How do I know if I'm a child of God? What does it look like? Jesus is not telling us what we have to do in order to become a child of God. He's saying these are the spiritual birthmarks that describe and detail someone who has been changed by God. It's predominantly in relation to how God views us. And we're going to see this word blessed over and over again throughout these series of verses. Now, if you've grown up in the church, what does that word blessed mean in this context? Happy, yeah, that's probably what you've heard. But happiness oftentimes, and there's truth in that, happiness oftentimes um, kind of refers to an internal subjective state in the way that we feel. The blessedness that God is going to describe here isn't just internal and subjective. It is an objective perspective of how God views these people. It's predominantly in relation to how God views you if you're a Christian. And there's an English word that better accommodates the definition of this word blessed than happy. And that word is congratulations. What we're gonna see from God's perspective to man is congratulations to the people that are marked by these virtues. These are the ones God defines as blessed, but we so easily buy into the beatitudes of the world, right? Especially in the context of sexuality. What are the beatitudes of the world? Well, blessed are the wealthy. They'll buy whatever they want. Blessed are the aggressive. Early bird gets the worm. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for notoriety. They will be noticed and popular. Blessed are the sexually liberated. Their body, their choice. Blessed are the hustlers, the schemers, the grinders. They'll get what they want. 
But the Beatitudes that Jesus is going to give are so radically different from the Beatitudes of the world. Can I survey them with you briefly? Verse three, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What Jesus is referring to is not poverty. He's not talking about the financial bottom line. He's talking about a pious or a humble recognition of your spiritual poverty. Is the opposite of self-assured. He's talking about a total dependence upon God. Maybe if you've grown up in the church, but even if you've grown up outside of it, potentially the most popular story in the Bible for you is that of the prodigal son. But there's a point in the prodigal son in Luke 15 where he's sitting in a pig pen and it comes to the end of himself. Meaning he goes, I have nothing to bring my father. And this is what Jesus is describing. The poor in spirit comes to the end of himself and says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I what? Cling. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This confession of our need for grace leads to a contrition over our sin. Contrition means absolute brokenness over the ways in which we have grieved God. Jesus is not talking about an Eeyore perspective on life because the will of God for your life in 1 Thessalonians 5 is to rejoice always, but there is a mourning and a disgust over our sin. Do you ever and have you ever mourned over the sin that breaks the heart of God? If so, Jesus looks at you in the eye and says, congratulations, you're blessed. Why? End of verse four, I will comfort you. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When we think of meekness, we think of the spineless hanging of the shoulders, just a groveling. We view meekness as antithetical to strength, right? But the biblical definition of meekness is not some spineless dude. It is a combination of patience, humility, and a kindness, and a resolve to live in submission to the word of God. The meek person has no desire to be dignified, no desire to be recognized. And Jesus says, blessed are them, are they. Congratulations, you're gonna inherit the earth. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The blessed person, the one that Jesus grabs by the shoulders and says, congratulations, are those that long to be satisfied with the righteousness of Christ. And so they pursue it and they pray aloud going, oh God, I long to be freed from sin. One Puritan writer says that the world believes that thou shall not is written across every single pleasure and thou shall is written across every single misery. The world is going to say to you, if you actually want to live, come to me, Enjoy every single temptation, bask in indulgence, and you will be filled. And Jesus says, if you actually want to live, come to me, bask in my presence, enjoy my goodness, and you will be satisfied. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I have two considerations for you and then a question regarding verse seven. 
two considerations first. Number one, you have received more mercy from God than you have ever extended to anybody else. Number two, you have grieved God more than anybody else has ever grieved you. Now a question, would you like God's memory of your sin to be as long as your memory of other people's sin? Jesus says, blessed are those who extend mercy because it is evidence that they have received and tasted mercy. Can you say amen? And here's where we will be for the remainder of our time this morning. And let me just tell you a little bit. I grew up in a pastoral family. My dad's been a pastor since day one. Uh, He's a seminary professor. I've grown up in an environment around maybe some of the people that know God's word as much as anybody on planet Earth. I've never had anybody grab my shoulders as a young man and tell me the rich promise of verse 8. And the greatest power and weapon for me in being pure before God is verse 8. Statistically, 73% of you actively look at pornography. Statistically, most of you will also be impure before marriage. But Jesus says, all of you, if you're in Christ, have been offered the richest promise in the entire world. And it's supremely better than anything the world has to offer. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The irony here, think with me, of God describing a blessing to the pure is that we live in a world where holiness of life is inseparable from a life of misery, a confined, restricted, suppressed existence. I'm sorry, bro, you have to live that way. But Jesus says, the one who made you and all good things, the author of all pleasure says, congratulations to the pure in heart, for you and you alone shall see God. We're gonna look at three observations regarding purity in heart. First, Purity in heart, it's nature. Secondly, it's promise. And third, it's pursuit. I wanna look first at its nature. What is the nature of a pure heart? Jesus doesn't start talking about sexuality when he talks about purity in heart. He says it has to do something with the internal elements of our life. And he's constantly going after the heart. Jesus is not looking for reformed behavior. He's not looking for renovated externals. He's going after the heart. And the question is why? Glance at your phones, turn on the news. What's the problem with the world? The problem with the world is the problem of the human heart. You are not fundamentally what other people believe you to be or observe you to be or assume you to be. You are fundamentally who you are in your heart. And the heart that is, is the you that Jesus knows. Jesus doesn't view you as other people view you. He views you in your heart. And this is why it says in John 2, 25, Jesus doesn't need anyone to testify concerning man because he already knows what is within man. He knows you at the heart level because your heart is your entire person. Your heart involves, and you can write some of these verses down, 
because I want you to understand this biblically. Your heart involves, number one, your mind. It says in Proverbs 23, seven, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. It involves, secondly, your emotions. John 14, one says, do not be troubled in your hearts. It involves, third, your will. Daniel 1.8, it says, Daniel purposed in his heart. There was a resolve there. It involves your conscience, number four. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the what? Talk to me. The heart. You are your heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, because out of the heart, your entire life is lived. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says, King Solomon is going to grab his son and say, watch over your heart with all diligence. Christ, Jesus showed up at Hume Lake 2022 Young Adults Retreat. You know what he's constantly gonna go after? Your hidden heart. He's gonna go after you at the heart level. One of the things we must consider is that the natural heart is impure. Turn to me, or with me, to Matthew 15, verses 19 and 20, and then keep your finger where you're at. Matthew 15, 19 and 20, Jesus is talking about the heart of man, and he says, for out of the heart, verse 19, come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. He says, out of the heart comes all of the sin of life. And there is nothing that we'll see biblically that the natural man, that you outside of God can do to transform your heart. Jeremiah is going to ask a question, a syllogistical question, which means it's not in respect to any sort of uncertainty. Jeremiah is going to say, hey, question for you. You like animals? I like animals. Can a leopard change his spots? What's the answer? No. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? What's the answer? No. And Jesus is going to say, neither can you in your own power transform your heart. Purity of heart then, we're going to talk about this more this evening because I would be a fool to assume that you all know God because Jesus addresses a crowd of his followers in Matthew 7 and he's going to say, many, many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I never knew you. And assuredly, there are some of those types of people in this very room. But purity of heart begins principally and positionally, the moment you and I are saved, I need you to understand this. The moment you are saved, God doesn't give you a washed heart. Do you understand this? He doesn't give you a blank slate. He gives you a, what type of heart? A new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit with you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh So principally, positionally, meaning before God, we have a pure heart. The moment he looks at us, because of the faith that we have placed in him, and he says justified. That means made righteous. But progressively, since you're saved, the moment you begin to know God and the rest of your life until you meet God face to face, purity in heart is progressive. This is why David is described as a man after God's own what? heart. Jesus is speaking to his followers and he tells them, blessed are you if you're pure in heart. But what else does this mean? It doesn't just mean that we have a cleansed heart or a new heart. It means more than that. Wheat, when it was separated from chaff, was in the Greek word, it's katharizo, which means it's unmixed. Unmixed. 
And I want to explain this, but first let me tell you about my grandpa. My grandpa was the homie. He's a first-generation Greek immigrant. Athanasius Christos Artavanus. I mean, can you say baller name? Yeah. So Athanasius Christos Artavanus, there's a couple things in his life that he loved. Tabasco, number one, okay? Everybody loves Tabasco. Number two, the San Antonio Spurs, Greg Popovich. Um, number three, he loved gold, meaning it was just something he felt like he had to wear to be Greek. Um, he just, Johnny, come here, come here, come here, come here. I don't see no gold. He didn't sound so much like the Godfather, but just bear with me. It's from my own memories. I don't see no gold. No, he would, uh, he would come up and say, you know, gold, Johnny, Greeks wear gold. He came here, and for his entire life, he worked at the Cadillac dealership as a sales rep in Santa Monica. I don't know if it gets more baller than that, but he would walk around, and he would... Uh, you know, talk about the cars, and then he would show people his bracelets and go, you know, this is nice, but you know what's nice? This interior leather. And uh, he would do that, but he would talk to me and explain gold because gold goes through a refining process. And when you're purifying gold, you get something called slag, which is any impurity on the gold surface. And that slag is then removed, okay? But gold is pure, not just when the impurities are removed. Gold is pure when there is only one substance remaining. Gold. So purity doesn't just mean cleansed. It means undivided. It means unmixed. The idea of purity of heart means a singular focus on God. No divisions, no distractions, whole devotion, our motives, thoughts, conscience, surrendered and submitted to God, free from any deceit and disguising. Question for you. Do you live a disguised life? Jesus says you're robbing yourself of something. Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book on this very verse, and the title of that book is fitting. It says, purity in heart means to will one thing. God cares about your purity in heart so much. If you're his child, he doesn't tolerate alternative lovers. Over 20 times in the book of Hosea, there's a key word. You know what that word is? Whoredom. Because God isn't, he's not a shy God, he's jealous not just for his own glory, but for relational fidelity. And so he says, I will not tolerate alternative lovers. He doesn't tolerate those who are divided and mixed in their affections. He doesn't tolerate spiritual looseness. And this is why he gives those who have a new heart, Ezekiel 24, 32, a new heart that will fear me forever. To be pure in heart means more than just to be cleansed. It means to pray with the psalmist in Psalm 86. Oh God, unite my heart to fear your name. I want it to have only one objective. I want it to be honoring God. So last night, Costi said, people that ask the question, how far is too far? They are far, far from living a united purpose. No one who is intent on following God asks that question. 
They ask the question, oh God, unite my heart to fear your name, and what is the absolute extreme that I can go before I meet you face to face of living a pure life before you because I want more sight of God? Oh God, cleanse my heart from anything that pollutes and distracts my vision of you. That's purity in heart. How do I know if my heart is pure? Four questions, you can take this examination and then we'll move on to our second point. Do you truly hate sin? Do you abhor your sin? Or do you cater to your sin and make provision for it? Do you feed your lusts? Or do you stomp them out? Number two, do you delight in holiness? Do you begrudgingly comply with Christian principles or do you eagerly seek to obey because you delight to obey the God that loves you and that you love yourself? Number three, do you have a large spiritual appetite? Do you long for delicacies of the soul? Number four, are the smiles and frowns of God of greater weight to you than the smiles and frowns of the world? Are you grieved by what grieves God? Do you find joy in what brings God joy? So that's the nature of a pure heart. But can I look secondly with you at purity's promise? And this is where I want to spend the bulk of our remaining time. What does it mean to see God? And I mentioned it already, that so many messages towards the young people, starting from maybe the moment you were in church to this very moment, are regarding the consequences of impurity. And Jesus is not going to shy away from those. But if you look at the scripture, it is always indicative before imperative. And I'm gonna explain what that means. Meaning that God always offers what he has done and the promises to those who obey before he warns them of the consequences if they do not. Does that make sense? Nod your heads if it does. Okay. That's the way Jesus is going to communicate. And if he shows up here, he's not gonna to talk to you about the dangers of impurity, even though the Bible is full of it, before he tells you the rich promise and blessing to walking in purity. In fact, a chapter after this, Jesus is going to say, hey, if your eye causes you to stumble, what? He doesn't say wash it out. He doesn't say put an eye patch over it. Don't look like a pirate. He says what? Tear that dude out because it's better for you to go into heaven with one eye than for your whole body and soul to be cast into hell. He's not going to mince words. But you know what he does do? He says, oh, there's something I have to tell you first and foremost. Something I have to tell you first and foremost. I wonder how many fathers have grabbed their sons and said, oh my goodness, son. I gotta tell you about the rich promise extended to the pure in heart. One day we will see God face to face. First John 3, 2 says we will see him and we will be like him. But this verse spoken 2,000 years ago is wonderful and applicable for every single believer today because this verb to see, and I never want to get lost in the languages, but sometimes they're helpful for us. This verb is a future continuous verb. What does that mean? It means it would literally read, they all believers right now and continually forever will be seeing God for themselves meaning that there is a future tense in which you see God, but there is a present tense where the pure in heart behold God. This is an already and not yet reality, 
But the promise that Jesus is extending is for every single 16-year-old out there, for every 21-year-old, for every 85-year-old that longs to see him face to face. But he says, you can see God right now. Jesus refers here mainly, I believe, to the scene that takes place with the eyes of faith. Jonathan Edwards is gonna say this. There is a more perfect way of perception than the eyes of our body. And here Jesus is revealing to us the eye of the soul is vastly more perfect than the eye of the body. They offer more satisfaction, more enjoyment, more pleasure, more wonder than anything the physical eye could ever behold. And then he's gonna explain something, that the greatest enjoyments, and we talked about this last night, God is a good giver of good things. He's the author of pleasure, not the enemy of it. He's a good God, so he gives good gifts to his children. And it's not because you deserve those gifts, okay? But in that, the greatest gifts that God has given that are pleasurable are not those that are physical. I mean, sex wasn't like the top of the ladder. It's not the Mount Everest of the pleasure that God extends. We are made in the image of God, so the greatest enjoyment and pleasure that God extends to us is something he shares in us with. And this is why if we were gonna talk about singleness or those who have never had sex, it's not like this is the crown jewel of the pleasure of life. Do you know what the crown jewel of the pleasure of life is? It is something that takes place in your mind through the eyes of faith as you see God. And this is why impurity, and I'll talk about this more, isn't worth it. It's not just like, oh, you know, I remember my, sitting down with my uncle. If, if I promised you a million dollars to wait, would you wait, you know, to, as far as for marriage or whatever like that? And, and Kosti kind of referenced it well. When you wait and all this expectation is placed on, oh, then maybe then I'll be satisfied because there'll be this moment. It's a wrong way of thinking if that's all that we think because there's supreme enjoyment for us now and forever regardless of, of if we ever get married. In scriptures and in our own vernacular, we use the word to see to reveal intellectual understanding. And all believers, I want you to think with me, like Anna Mae Panica, have had their scales removed so they can see God. But not all believers have the same level of clarity and vibrancy in their vision of God. The scales may be removed, but many fail to put their glasses on through the means of faith every single day in order that they may see God more clearly. I'll explain this to you biblically. But Spurgeon said something, and I read it when I was 19, and it changed my life. Because at that point, if you, I'd grown up in an environment where I knew, I've said it before, but I could, I could repeat and memorize scripture before I could formulate my own sentences. That, that, do, do, da, da, mama, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Pink starburst, you know, like that was my life. And, and I knew the truth so well, but Spurgeon is going to say something, that there are people here and people who profess Christ that have had the scales of their blindness removed, that are content to wade and waddle ankle deep in their knowledge and intimacy with Christ the rest of their life. And they never plunge into the sea of all that is there in seeing God. It's like they spend their entire life splashing like this and they never jump in the water. The entire ocean is there and they live their life in the shallow end. The blindness has been removed, but they never long to see God more clearly. All 
that Christ has justified, he will sanctify, which means if you've been made right with God, he will conform you into the image of God more and more. But not everyone experiences the same richness and satisfaction and joy that comes from seeing God more clearly. You can live a half-hearted existence, and Jesus says the people that live that existence live impure lives. And this is why Paul says he presses on towards the prize. Okay, what's the prize? His prize is seeing God. And this is why he prays for the Ephesian church, that the eyes of your heart may be, anybody know? Enlightened. He's saying, my prayer for you, Ephesian church, my main crew, is that God would open up your eyes to see more of his glory and wonder and awesomeness and the glorious inheritance that we have in Christ. Oh, please, he says, see it more. See it more clearly. Put your glasses on. He's more than just a savior, and he's not just a devo friend. Don't relegate him to the periphery of your life. He is wonderful. Do you know what, okay, well, Satan is a master strategist, okay? Do you know what Satan's chief strategy is to the unbelieving world? Do you know? What? God? Uh, could be, yeah, it could be one of them in a way, yeah. Um, I kind of like, we can talk back and forth here. What else, anything? What? What? Doubt, yeah, yeah, he's the accuser, Romans 8. This is what Satan does all day long with believers. But one of the chief strategies of Satan is actually revealed to us in the scripture, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. One of the main ways that Satan is working with those who don't know God, he doesn't even have to convince them that God doesn't exist. You know what Satan wants to do? It says he blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan works so that unbelievers, even if they believe in him, because you've seen Jordan Peterson, who's an atheist, can cry and say, the only worldview that makes sense is if the God of the Bible exists. He's beginning to understand. You can watch these videos of Jordan Peterson during COVID, one of the most popular atheists in the world, and you say, I just don't know how to reconcile life without this God. But Satan's okay if he's there. He's okay if he even comes to the position and goes, there's no, no way that a big bang made all of this. Satan doesn't care. You know what Satan wants? It's to rob them and prevent them from seeing with their mind that God is glorious and wonderful. You know what Satan's chief strategy is for your life? Same thing. It's to prevent you by the sin that pollutes and fogs your vision of God to think, God's my homeboy. It's I, it's not glorious and wonderful. I mean, yeah, for sure, theologically, he's the best. And Satan is content by the means of idleness, indulgence, doubt, or distraction to keep you from seeing all the wonder that is in Christ. As a believer, you need to understand this, Romans 6, you are no longer under the reign of Satan. But do you know what you are? still vulnerable to his schemes. And what are his schemes? It's to keep you from seeing the beauty of Christ. 
Unbelievers don't see God. Matthew 13, 13, seeing they don't see, they don't get it. They don't see their need for God. There's no recognition of their need for rebirth. rebirth. They may assent to truths regarding the nature of God, but they don't really see him. They don't get it. Doesn't make sense. There are others who have been educated in the truth who, de- who can declare the, the smorgasbord of the attributes of God and can cross-examine them in Scripture, and yet with the eyes of their heart, they have never seen God. You can get 100% on Calvin's Institutes and not know God. What does it mean to see God? Well, three things, briefly. It means, number one, to be admitted into his presence. When I, 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 I'm like uh, made of glass, so like every six months I'm due for a surgery. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just a joke. I mean, shoulders, knees, whatever it is. Um, I go to the doctor and they're like, you again, sup Johnny, how's it going? How's Katie, how's Lily? You know, like it's like they know me. Um, but when I'm waiting in the waiting room, they come out, the assistant, and they say, the doctor will what? See you now. It means to be admitted into the presence of the doctor. It's not that I'm gonna go in and look at the doctor and say, see, bye. No, it's that I'm welcomed into his presence. And when you're in the presence of someone, the presence of that person becomes real to you. Have you ever marveled at the sense of God's presence in your life? Have you ever burst forth while doing laundry or in line at Taco Bell the things you've maybe theologically affirmed that he's omnipresent. Have you ever gone, oh God, you're with me. Oh God, wherever I go, where can I, where can I depart from your presence? Where can I flee? I can't do anything in my life, oh God. The greatest terror to the unbeliever is the greatest comfort to those who know God. I can't go anywhere without feeling the presence of God. You can affirm his omnipresence and not be thrilled by it. The difference is seeing God. Those who see God, their hearts have been sprinkled clean, but they now draw near, Hebrews says, with full assurance. Secondly, to see God, and it means not only to be admitted into his presence, but it means to apprehend his awesomeness and beauty. John 14, 26, it says that, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, and the one who loves me will obey me, and I and my Father will disclose myself to him. Did you catch that? I mean, no one ever really talked to me about this verse because it's my you know, main motivator for purity, meaning that there is a gradual and progressive degree in which God discloses himself to you. Do you know that? So that's why sometimes when you, I was in Australia after school, I went to a church in Australia, and I've shared this story before, but there's this event where this pastor gets up and says, hey, how many of you have ever found you? I ain't a lion. You're like, what? You're like, I want one. You know, like Aslan, Dunn, Mufasa, Rar, Simba. You literally disobeyed me. You know, like, I want that, you know? How many of you ever found your inner lion? And what he's doing is he's making it seem like if you go up to the mountain, he says, you're going to find your shout. And that idea of finding your shout, it means that you are going to have an epiphany moment where everything becomes crystal clear. And it left me, and it left me feeling like, man, I want that. The only problem with the message is it's not biblically how God works. God doesn't come to you in epiphany moments, typically. 
The way that God works is through progressively manifesting himself to those who walk with him. So it is a marathon, not a miracle moment. Yes, for sure, Paul's miraculous conversion. But do you want to know how you're going to see more of God? Do you want to know how you're going to have this intimacy with God where you go, he is the, the greatest and the best? It's because God reveals himself in such a way we're seeing God, you apprehend his awesomeness. Jonathan Edwards says again, to see God is this, I love this. It is to have an immediate, sensible, and certain understanding of God's glorious excellency and love. When we dwell here, we dwell at the fountain and spring of pleasure. Do you know where the manufacturing plant of pleasure is? Nearness to God. The love of God, he says, is the most suitable entertainment of the soul of man. And the greatest pleasure that God has given to you is to see him through the eyes of faith. And this is what will make heaven, heaven. Have you ever been struck by the awesomeness of God? Seriously, I know you sing it. But have you ever gone oh my goodness, you're telling me biblically that the power that guides the universe is the power in hand that guides my life. And the God that appoints the stars and sets them in their location, Psalm 147, is the same God who has numbered every single hair on my head and holds, Isaiah says, every single tear that I've cried in a bottle. Have you ever cried out like David and says, oh God, when I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars that you have made, what is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, God, you're not just mindful of me. You deeply, 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 deeply love me. Oh, this is awesome to me. Have you ever grabbed a friend by the collar and said, I gotta, I gotta get this off my chest. God is making his awesomeness so clear to me. I'm studying Solomon right now at our Bible study, teaching through Ecclesiastes. Solomon had everything money could buy and a thousand women. He had no desire for personality, shape, hair color, ethnicity. Hugh Hefner had six girlfriends and was touted as the playboy. And King Solomon says, nice. I got married to six women the second week of August. <laughs> Kick rocks, Hugh. And he's going to say something in Ecclesiastes 1.8. He's going to say, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. But there is a type of seeing that truly satisfies. It is the seeing of God. All worldly pleasures and enjoyments are sandy in their foundation, except for one. This enjoyment lasts now and it starts forever and goes on forever and goes on forever and ever. Number three, what does it mean to see God? This will be brief here. It means to be comforted by his grace and I, I can't ignore this and this is something God promises to those who see him. Job, life destroyed, family dead, everything's in burning, Chaldean, Sabaeans, wind, fire, hail, just destroys his life. He's sitting in a pile of dirt, scratching his boils with shards of pottery with a wife telling him to curse God and die. And after God reveals his character, he says something I love. 
He says, my ears have always heard, but now my eyes see. Do you know what Job says after God reveals his character? He says, I get it. I get it. What is the fruit of seeing God? I want you to understand the progression biblically. The fruit of seeing God is more purity, which fuels its continued pursuit. Do you want to be holy? If you miss this, you miss everything. Marriage is always a picture that shows us something. It's a metaphor in the Bible. It shows us something because God is revealing who he is. And God reveals who he is, not just to people that understand the metaphor. He reveals who he is to people that have one undivided, unmixed, cleansed heart. And so for the pure in heart, they see more of God. They hate sin more. They continue to pursue God. And so the reward of purity is the fuel of its continued pursuit. It's a vicious cycle of grace. The more pure in heart we become, the more we see God in everything, in every page of scripture, in every single detail in our life, in every trial he sends our way, we trace his providence. And the more we see him, the more we groan over our sin because he's no longer a thing to us. He's our father. I mean, I don't know how many times someone told me this. You understand that you will always love sin more than God as long as you view God as a thing or a principle. You will always love your sin more than God until you view God as your father. So we put the cart before the horse so much. I could tell you, hey, if you're, if you're living in habitual sin, the Bible says you, you might not know God. In fact, it says you don't know God. But I, I wonder, has anybody ever told you that if your goal isn't to see God more clearly, even the moments resisting temptation will feel like a refusal to violate a principle rather than to grieve your father. In the moments you spend resisting temptation, you'll feel like a fish out of water. Navy SEALs can hold their breaths for four minutes, but resisting sin and temptation shouldn't feel like suffocation. It should feel like breathing. It should feel like real air. And that mindset is only available to those who go, God, I don't know what I'm thinking, but this pornographic image, this relationship that causes me to stumble and pollutes and fogs my vision of seeing you clearly isn't worth it. I, I'm running out of time. I think I might pick it up a little bit where we begin tonight, but maybe if I could just give you some headers because this is so important. How do we do this? Number three, how, how do we pursue purity in heart? Though it be God's grace and God's work to give it, it is truly your work to obtain. All things that God gives you to, understand this, everything God has given you to given to you as a command, he has given you the grace to obey. His commandments are his enablings. 
It is God's work in one sense. It is your work in another. James 4, 8, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Spirit-empowered sweat. We are commanded to make a new heart. So God says he gives you a new heart, but Ezekiel 18 says, cast away from you all your transgressions and make you a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die? And yet it is God who gives it. What does this mean? It means that God's gracious provision is never the reason for our passivity, but rather our confidence in the pursuit. How can I pursue greater purity and a greater vision to God? Well, it's ultimately and foundationally, and I'm gonna talk about this more tonight, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's rooting our lives in the gospel. But it's also the ordinary means of grace, and I can, I've written these down in my Bible, and you can keep note of them. We draw near to God's word, number one. God's word being pure itself purifies those who read it. If God's word is not your priority, neither is your purity. Stop lying to yourself. We walk with the wise, number two. Joel Beakey says, association begets assimilation. You become like that which you behold, and you become like that which you befriend. Number three, we make no provision for the flesh. Edwards says again, many professing Christians tempt the devil to tempt them by making provision for the flesh they claim to hate. Don't try to confuse God that you hate your sin when the avenue for your sin is still an app on your phone. Seriously, he's not confused, right? You need to go, God, I, I, I need your grace in this. But make no provision means you cut off from your life that which causes you to stumble because why? Seeing God is better. Number four, you pray for purity. I love this passage in Genesis where it says, Enoch walked with God and was no more. I just pray sometimes, oh God, make me like Enoch. A man that walked with God, cut my entire life from one fabric, like a seal upon the wax. I want the spirit to change my life. And as I pray, I pray for perseverance. I pray, Psalm 51, oh God, create in me a clean heart. I pray, Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray, Psalm 139, oh God, search me and know me. Put my life under trial. Please, God, I want to know you. Number five, we think. 1 John 3, 3. We set our hope, we fix our minds on something. The Christian faith is a thinking faith and tomorrow's faith is today's unbelief. Think about the cloud that sin is that prevents you from seeing the glorious sun of righteousness. And I guess if I could just conclude, to see God means that everything you've grown up singing becomes experientially real for you. Have you ever sung the line, amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst what? Talk to me. Die for me. I remember singing that and just going, I want that to actually be the cry of my heart. Have you ever gotten to that point? Conversely, Jesus is going to say, the impure in heart, they never see God. And they never really experientially express his awesomeness. They never feel admitted into his presence. They go, yeah, God's, he's everywhere. But they never go, he is near. 
Anna Mae Penica found out years after her surgery in 1981 that the surgery that she received was available to her in the 1940s, 40 years earlier. She lived 40 years of her life in unnecessary blindness. And the technique for curing blindness is available to you now. Why would you wait? Do you need a new heart so you can see God positionally? Have you ever come to know the Savior? I know some of you have not. Jesus bids you to come to the great physician. He'll give you a new heart. Have you received a new heart and yet you long for more of God? Come to the great physician. He'll continue to clean and purify it so you can see him more clearly. And you can cry out with the saints, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let me pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your son. Thinking of Solomon, where you tell him, make a request, and you stretch out metaphorically the golden scepter and say, make a request up to half of my kingdom or whatever it might be. I'll give you whatever you want. I wonder how many of us would say, oh, Lord, give me a pure heart. Psalm 73 says, you are good to those who are clean in heart. Purity doesn't begin with conversations about pornography, biblically speaking, or adultery, or fornication. The first words that you mention regarding purity in the New Testament is the rich promise extended to those who are pure. Oh God, I want that. I want to see you more. Would that be all of our heart's desire? We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said.